Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 28 here in just a moment. There's a preacher's preacher whose name's Fred Craddock. Uh, uh, his books and his preaching style was instrumental in when I was being trained to preach. Uh, you can't blame him for my flaws, but he taught me a few things. And one of the things he talked about regularly is there's a danger when you're preaching. It's called the knot of recognition. And this is when your audience goes, oh, yeah, I know that text. And it's not a question of whether we know it. The question is whether we've implemented it and we've lived it out, that we can learn something new from it. And today we're going to be in one of those texts. If you're uh, visiting with us this morning, my name's Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here, and we're glad you're with us. I'm going to tell you where we've been so you know where we're going. Uh, we're in a lengthy period of time, been spending time on the last week of Jesus' ministry here. This is before the crucifixion and resurrection. And on Sunday of this particular week, Jesus came into the, the holy city of Jerusalem, and he came in on what was called Palm Sunday. They laid palm branches before him uh, to honor him, and they called him the Messiah. This is one of the first times in Scripture that Jesus received the, the claim of being the Messiah without silencing the audience. And it wasn't because they were incorrect. The timing wasn't right. And this is the first time that Jesus allowed them to welcome him into the city as the Messiah. <clears throat> they expected a military hero, and he came as the Passover lamb. They wouldn't understand until well after this week ended what Jesus was doing. So he leaves that night. He goes back to the city of Bethany, which is about three or five miles somewhere in that uh, vicinity away from the city. And he came back in on Monday and he went into the temple area where the worship was taking place. And he overturned the tables of all the people that were charging exorbitant prices and and selling things for uh, and taxing everything. And Jesus just went in and he wiped out the the high priest. uh, Annas was the one who had this thing called the market, and he was charging people and taking advantage of visitors, and Jesus went and he cleared out the temple. And in the context of those two moments, the Messiah coming in the city and him going into the temple and cleansing it, the religious leaders of his day asked him this question, by what authority did you just do that? Who gave you the right to come in here and do this? Jesus would tell them three stories, three parables. All three parables have to deal with an authority figure and the expectations he placed on them. You have a father asking his sons to help him with the work. You have a vineyard owner asking for the proceeds from the vineyard that he deserves as the owner. And then you have a king who's holding a banquet and invited those into his house and they don't show up and he gives them accountability as to why they said they would come and were not prepared. You see, all three are answering the question. When there is authority established, submission should be accepted and it should be expected. And so you have this. The religious leaders understood exactly what he was doing. Jesus was in the temple every day teaching. The crowds were hearing. And three straight stories, the crowd would know that the religious leaders were being called to account. And they didn't like it. So they decide they're going to get after Jesus and they're going to ask him some questions. They're going to ask him three questions and all of them are intended to pin Jesus to the wall and expose him. The first question they come up to and said, Caesar charges us this tax. Do we have to pay our taxes to Caesar when he's not actually our commander, when he's not actually our king? And Jesus responded very simply, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, honor, taxes, respect, and give to God what God deserves, 
honor, and respect. Jesus had established a line that we are to honor our government for the services it provides. We're to support our government because government like church and family and marriage are some of the things that God put into society to bring about the right things. But when our government stands against the things of God, we need to stand. And we need to stand for those things. We always will choose God over government, but many times we don't have to choose. We can honor government and still honor God. And so that group went away, feeling like they thought they were going to trap Jesus to be anti-Rome. And he answered correctly. He didn't actually answer their question. He challenged them to go deeper. And then last week, we didn't have services because of the the forecasted snow uh, apocalypse that never occurred. But when you live out in the country and you've got only two roads to get out here and ice parking lots, I hope you understand, sometimes we have to make decisions that with the data we had. And so anyway, we didn't have service, but Michael DeFazio preached the previous Thursday. If you haven't gone online and listened to that message, I'm really going to encourage you because the second question they asked was a group of people who didn't believe that there was a resurrection after life. So they came to Jesus and they painted a scenario that they were sure were going to make Jesus look foolish because he preached a resurrection. And they came to Jesus and they said, okay, you know the rules that if a woman's married to a man and she doesn't have a child, a, a male son, to take care of her, when her husband dies, then it was the culture, don't judge it, it just was the culture, that it was set up that the woman would have a child with the man's oldest brother so that his lineage would go on. So property rights and all that was inherent with that would would carry on. And they said, what if a woman married a man and he died, and then she uh, married his brother and he died and married another brother? What if she married seven brothers and none of them gave her a male offspring? In this resurrection you talk about Jesus... Who's she married to? And, you know, they're, they're looking around at each other going, busted. You know, they just thought they were so happening. And Jesus responded twice in the text. You need to listen to Michael's message. It's awesome. Twice in the text, Jesus looked at these religious guys and he goes, you don't understand scripture, do you? He said it again. You just don't understand the scriptures. You're not even seeing what's in there. And Jesus was offering to become their teacher, but they wouldn't have it. And they walked away discouraged. Today, we're at the third question asked of Jesus. You see, if we don't know where we've been, we won't know where we're at. And so you have this moment, three stories about authority, followed by three questions that question his authority. And here we go. Verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? It's a fair question. In fact, I don't think this is a bad question. I, don't, I think this person's trying to get Jesus to say something that could be useful against him. But it's a legitimate question because you and I ask it every day. How can I live the moral kingdom life Jesus came to introduce? How can I actually perform, if you will, what he's asking? They kept hearing Jesus teach about this new kingdom and this new way of living and this turning the other cheek and living for other people. And so the question is, What do I do? In fact, I've entitled the first point this morning, it's the least we can do. And for many of us, not to be too pointed, but let's be honest, we live our Christianity like at the minimum least we have to do. The question of the subtext of his whole question is, what are the minimum requirements for pleasing God? What's, just boil it all down. You see, these these religious people had created 613 addendums to the law of God. 613 things you had to do to be good. And that's what it was all about. If you did these things in the proper way, you were doing well. 
they're asking the question, what is fulfillable? What is fulfillable? What, what can I actually get away? I, I know what it all says, but tell me, what do I need to do? Timothy Keller, Dr. Keller says this, and I, I love his line. He says, we're made in the image of God because we're made in the image of God and we realize that we exist not by any choice we made, but we exist by the choice of others, that there has to be a greater power that's organized and designed this world and our bodies and everything else. We know inherently that there is something greater than us. And he says, in the midst of all of that, we know that we should answer to something. But because we live in a broken world and we're broken people, surrounded by broken people with broken systems, where there is no justice shown regularly, there's injustice all the time, and people use injustice to gain advantage. And he said, because of all of that, we know we should answer to somebody, but we are scared to death to answer to anybody. Do you understand what he's saying? It's hard to trust when you don't see trustworthy things around you. And so because of that situation, this man is saying to Jesus, I know I have an obligation to God. Would you just tell me what, I, what it really is all about? Would you break down, instead of all the legalism and all the standards that we put on each other, what ultimately am I here for? What am I supposed to do? What's the least I can do? Second point I want to make this morning is this. The most important need takes the most important motivation. When Jesus answers this question, and he answers it brilliantly, when he's done answering it, you and I have something to do. And that thing to do is what we become. It's not just an action. It's what we become. Look at verse 29. And I want you to notice that this is, for me, of the three questions asked of Jesus in this particular moment in time, this is the only one he answers directly. The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now notice it doesn't say there are no commandments. He makes it one. He takes these two verses from the Old Testament. He snaps them together. Part of it they were going to expect. You see, he actually opened with what's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. That's what the Hebrew word Shema means, listen. And they knew this. This would be the memory verse that every Hebrew child would have grown up with. Every Hebrew child would have known, listen, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and strength. They would have known that. They would have learned that. In America, if, even if you don't go to church, you'd ask most people, do you know any scripture? And they know two. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world and judge not lest you be judged. We all know that one. Why? Because the two fundamental parts of being an American are we, we don't want to pay for our own problems and we definitely don't want anybody in our business. You'd ask the Hebrew and their response would have been, there is only one God and he deserves everything. And this would have been something they would have quoted in the morning, in the, in the mid-afternoon, time of prayer, and in the evening. So when Jesus answered with the Shema, hear, O Israel, the crowd was looking for him. The religious leaders were trying to get him to say something that wasn't kosher. And he comes out with the granddaddy of all kosher lines. And they're like, wow, he's good. And then he says, and the second is, and they're like, whoa, whoa, wait, there's never been a second. But he's like, oh, no, no, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 34. We're going to drop down to the end here. I know you don't, you're not supposed to do that, but why not? Let's jump down to verse 34. 
From then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. In fact, no one dared actually connotes fear or hesitation. You see, they kept trying to pin him, and at the end of it, every question Jesus answered actually convicted them of themselves. And they thought, this is ridiculous. He is, we're never going to catch Jesus not being wise. You see, they did not respond as, isn't that sweet? It's all about love. They didn't start singing the Beatles song. All they need is love. All together now. No, anyway, but they didn't do that. They just actually heard him for the first time. You see, Jesus went beyond simple execution. This is a group of people, religious people like us, who were spending their entire life doing the things that made them look good, doing the things that made them feel good, doing the things that elevated them above other people. And Jesus blew them out of the water because he said it's never been about that. What he does is he completely redefines the content and motive for our compliance. So let me explain it this way. He redefined the what. They came to him and said, boil this down, make it simple. And he redefined the what, the content. In my research, many commentators say that what they believe this man was asking Jesus to do was to take the Ten Commandments, how you live out this faith, take the Ten Commandments and boil it down to the most important principles. If you look at the Ten Commandments, it begins with love God only. And worship God only, because he is the one true God. And all the Hebrews would have said yes. But then there are parts of it that are very personal. It's how I live my personal life. And then there are parts of the Ten Commandments that how I live in community with you. And the scholars believe that what they were asking Jesus to do is, is it about me or is it about we? And Jesus' answer was amazing, because what he did is he took the Ten Commandments. He said, no, you begin by loving God, and then you love other people. And you cannot perform the Ten Commandments unless you get over yourself and think about others first. His answer caused them to go, I got nothing else. You see, if you take the honor your mother and father or do not commit adultery, that's a personal response. And you could say, is it just about my my personal holiness? Or if they would have taken, don't steal and don't bear false witness. That's about justice. That's about how we interact with other people in our world. And so they were simply saying to him, is it about me or is it about we? And Jesus said, no, it's about all of it. It really comes down to love is why you're asking the question because you've misunderstood the law. He chose both the personal and the communal. Matthew actually adds in his telling of this particular moment in time, Matthew adds that Jesus said, and on these two commandments, hang all the law and prophets. It's always been about love. Love is what the rules have always been after. But when you read another passage of scripture, the law became a burden. It became heavy. It broke people. Why? Because they were doing what they were doing, not because they loved God. They were doing what they were doing so God would love them. And it became too much. Now, no matter what condition you are in here today, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, you're welcome to be here. But I know one thing we all have in common. There are people in every single one of our lives. Every, I, I, I would be stunned if one person did not have at least one person in their life that whatever they asked you to do, legal and ethical, and some, maybe not, but if you have someone in your life that no matter what they asked you to do, because of who they were to you, you would do it. Every one of us has someone in our life that we just look at with so much love and so much respect and for what they've done for us and how they've cared for us and provided for us. 
I can think of my grandparents, I can think of my parents, I can think of my brothers, I can think of friends here in the community that have been so kind and gracious to me that if they said, hey, would, you know, I, I need to go to Vancouver, would you drive me there? Let's go, road trip. Just go get a big iced tea and off we go. And some of you are like, hey, could you take me to the store? I'm busy. And you'd be like, well, what's the difference? Relationship, right? No, I would take you to the quickie mart at least if you bought me an iced tea. Anyway, so my whole point being, you're wondering, would he drive me? You missed the point. The truth is that every one of us has someone in our life that if they asked us to do something because of who they are to us, we would do it. Jesus, what's the law all about? How much God means to you? How much he means to you? Not how much it makes you look good. Not how much it makes you feel better. Not how much forgiveness is just a great relief off your mind. But it's Jesus on the cross. It's the power of forgiveness. It's the truth that the God of the universe, who should call us to account for every time we've disrespected what he asks us to do, that each and every time he has forgiven us, and it is for that that when he says to us, would you love other people more than you choose to love yourself, that if God matters to us, our answer is, absolutely, I would do that for you. You see, the content, what are we to do? We're to love. The motive, redefining the why. Why do we do this? I'd like to just put these two expressions up on the screen. Love defines what it means to live lawfully, and the law defines what it means to live lovingly. And by the law, I don't mean a set of rules. I mean what God has told us in the scriptures is the way life should be interacted with him and with others. There's this triad going on. There's my relationship with God and my relationship with you and your relationship with me, and that all bound together in God's love is the beautiful symmetry of what we see in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a powerful opportunity for us. You see, God did not give us these rules, laws, and concepts to live by because he was punishing us for, being, for having rejected him. The law was not punishment. The law was God's way of showing us how to live out love, how to care for other people. And a heart filled with love for God. Jesus gives us this ridiculous command. He says, love your enemies. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He doesn't say have affection for them. He doesn't say enjoy what they did to you. He doesn't say act like it wasn't a big deal. To love, according to Dallas Willard, I love his definition. He said, to love your enemy is to will God's good for them. To will God's good for them. To want what God wants for them and to help them see what God wants for them so they can experience it in their wholeness. It doesn't mean having affection for them. It means caring about their soul and giving yourself to the purpose of introducing them to who God is. If I'm here to tell you this morning that doing what God wants is because so God will love me and doing what God wants is so you'll feel good about yourself and if doing what God wants is so other people will respect us, then all I've taught you is to love yourself. Because the reason you're doing what you're doing is to receive what you want to receive, respect, kindness, and forgiveness. But what Jesus actually said is that the life-giving love only comes when we're not worried about what we're receiving, but when we actually worry about what we're offering, which is the example Jesus gave us. So you and I choose not to lie, not so we would avoid punishment, or, or we choose not to, to practice sex outside of God's design because we're worried about what people will think of us. And we choose uh, to, to practice honest justice, not so people will think we're awesome. We do those things because God says 
If you love me, trust me in this by, by living out what I'm asking you to do. Not only am I loving you and you're loving me, but that love will make a difference in other people's lives too. The why matters to fulfill the what. And I think if we can learn anything from this, it's that as Christians, there's a lot of times the things we're doing is checking boxes so we feel good about us. Rather than doing what Jesus asked us to do because we feel good about God. Remember those people that came to mind when I told you you had somebody that you would do most anything for? It really doesn't matter what they ask you to do. As awful as it may seem and as, as you know, whatever the word would be that makes you think I don't like it, all that comes to my mind is painting. I would rather take a stick in the face than paint. But if I love someone and they say, would you help me paint the house? Yeah, if I loved you, I would. Would I enjoy it? No. Would I, be, would I celebrate when it's over? Oh, Yeah. But love is what's going to help me paint because wanting to isn't going to get me there. And Jesus is saying, we need to change your want to. To love God so that you can love others because he loved you well. And some of the most favorite words you ever hear in church, as I conclude, does that make you happy? The third point is excessive pursuit. So I want to show you something interesting here in verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied, and I don't think he's being snarky there at all. I think he went after Jesus a little bit, and he stopped, and he went, wow, that makes sense. Well said, teacher, you're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. I'm going to show you something interesting here. When he says that you've answered well and that you were right in saying that this is more important, to, to love is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices, I want you to hear what he actually said. This is a man who'd spent his entire life trying to prove to God how worthy he was, to try to prove to God how hard he's trying, to try to show God over and over, look at the 613 things I do every week to prove to you that I'm worth it. And he says, you know what? To love is more important than those things. To love is more important than proving myself. To love is more important than rewarding myself. To love is more important than setting an image before other people. In fact, he uses the word more important. It's actually in the Greek. The better translation in English might be exceeds. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. If you're living your life to prove you've earned it, there's no love. It's self-love. But if you live your life to honor God by what you do, to show others by what you do, than you love. So what's it all boil down to? Love, love, love. All we need is love. Love for God motivates us to love our neighbor. Loving our neighbor shows the love of God. And at the end of it, we find our purpose. It's not a horrible life. God is not asking us to do this to punish us. He's asking us to do this to reveal who we are. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you three or two steps. And the reason I'm giving you the two steps, I'm going to show you the blessing behind each one of them. When we trust God, what he does, the very first thing is we need to stop. We need to admit, confess, repent, whatever Bible word you want to use. We need to, we need to acknowledge before the Father today that some of the things we're doing right now are simply to check a box 
and prove to the world that we're Christians. When Jesus told us the only thing that will show the world we're actually Christians is how we love. So if there are things in your life right now that you're simply doing because it helps you feel better about you or it proves to God or to everyone else that you're trying to prove to God something, I'm going to just say the best thing I can do. This is a dangerous thing for a preacher. Stop doing it. Oh, it may kill our offerings. No one may show up next week. I'm willing to take the risk because if we're not doing what we're doing from the love of our hearts, we just need to quit because it's meaningless. So the first thing we need to do is admit that our best efforts mean nothing. And what that will do, the blessing is, that will kill pride and it will kill accomplishment. And one of the healthiest things you do in worship is to end your own pride and end your own boasting. And the second thing we do is we move beyond trying to please God and just living in the pleasure of God. It's a greater motivation. Listen to some of the things Jesus tells us to do in other passages of Scripture. Die to live. Surrender to win. Give it all away and receive more than you ever imagined. Jesus is challenging us to trust him in the difficult moments. And if that happens, it destroys your fear. And I've never met a person who didn't want to remove fear, didn't want to remove pride, and didn't want to remove this sense of accomplishment. So about a year ago, Matt Gilchrist, who's the missional impact minister here, and some friends of ours from CIY went on a joint trip to India to, to have some discussions with some partners. And we were in one of the airports, and I don't really remember if we were flying out or flying back, but people had spread. I think it had to be flying back because we all got away from each other. We just spent 10 days together, and it was awesome, but space. And I was sitting in one of the airports, and I was on my laptop, and I was answering some emails and doing some work. And all of a sudden, I saw this cute little girl. She had to be two or three years old, just toddling, chubby little legs and cute little red dress and a bow in her hair. And she's walking this direction toward me, and I'm sitting in a chair, and I'm typing, and I'm watching her, and she's cute. And I hear two older ladies next to me going, oh, look at her, little princess. And it was all cute. We were just enjoying her. She was waddling through the... And then she was going, mom, mom. And it wasn't like, mom, mom, look at me. I'm awesome. It began to become frantic. Like, Mom! Mom! This little tiny girl and anybody with a soul. And that day I felt mine, okay? I'll be honest with you. That day I had one. It was in that moment that as a dad, I watched this little girl come down the aisle. And there she was, and she was looking desperately. You could tell she was becoming more frantic, and she started to cry, and she started to squeal at a higher pitch. Mom, mom, she had lost her mother, and she didn't know where she was, and she was alone, and she was scared, and she just wanted her mom. And what was beautiful was about six or seven of us got up from where we were, all of us parents, and we just wanted to get our hands on that little girl and help her find her mom. We wanted her to know we would help her find her mom. But before any of us could get to her, and I'm thinking deep inside, she's not going to let some strange bald guy grab her. She shouldn't. <laughs> but anyway, I wanted to be helpful. And as I went toward her, we heard about 50 yards behind her another frantic voice. Sherry! 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 And little Sherry heard her mom's voice and turned and bolted toward her mom, and her mom ran toward her and picked her up and hugged her and held her, and the girl was crying, the mom was crying, and I acted like I wasn't. And I sat down in my chair and put my laptop back on my my lap, and I looked over at the two ladies next to me, and we were all smiling like, whoo, that was awesome. We got to see what was meant to be. And so you're saying, why would you tell me that ridiculous story? Here's why. 
Because what I've asked you to do today from the text is exactly what every single one of us who stood up that day were willing to do. To love your neighbor is not to preach sermons. It's when you see someone wandering through life looking for their father, looking for their place, looking for safety and someone who loves them and cares for them, someone they know deep down in their soul. Our jobs as believers is not to preach them sermons, not to hand them out tracts. Those things are all neutral. The thing we really need to do is help them find their father. And loving someone is not so they think well of us. That girl didn't care about who I was. If I could have helped her find her mom, that's all she needed from me. And as believers, our task is just to live in such a way that our love for God helps other lost children find the father we regained. Church, are you with me? So what does that look like for you? Depends where you're at. In an airport, it was helping a little girl find her mom. At work, it's a completely different thing. At school, it's a completely different thing, but it's not really that different because it's only about choosing to love them in such a way that we lead them back to the love of the Father. Jesus, what's it all about? Love God enough to love others. And should you do that, they will love God. And you will experience why you're here and why Jesus saved every single one of us and returned us home. Around this room are four tables with lamps lit. I'm going to encourage those of you today who've never received the love of the Father, that as we sing here in just a few moments, and at the end of the service, just go to one of these tables. If you've never made a decision to say, Jesus, I believe that your love is what I need, that your forgiveness, and I want to love you in return, If you want to become a follower of Jesus, we'd love to just explain at your own pace what Jesus desires from you. To love his Father, to love his sacrifice, and to love the world on his behalf. And today, if you want to become a disciple, go to one of these tables. For those of us who have chosen discipleship and find out that we're just too locked into our own worlds, remember, it's not about what you do to make you feel better. It's what you do that allows others to know who Jesus Christ is and what he offers them. That is what truly will make your heart whole. And that's what will bring life. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.